Hey everybody, welcome to the 10 to 12 podcast, the official podcast of Teamsters Local 1150. I'm Stephen French. I'm Vinny Kaitsi. And we're here with Statman Jason Shoemaker. So one thing that we kind of committed to when we, when we started talking about doing this podcast was to not let it become a political podcast, right? Too many labor podcasts out there are no longer labor podcasts. They're political podcasts. And we know that we have a diverse membership in terms of political views. And this podcast is meant to unite us. It's meant to bring us together to talk about issues that are important to us. So we feel a need to stay away from those political issues, to keep those opinions to ourselves as it as it pertains to this podcast and just talk about things that affect our workforce and other workers. Um, but we do need to talk about things like legislation, yep. right? Absolutely. Laws, bills that that either affect us as workers and union workers or have the potential of affecting us. And and talk to our members and other union workers about how these laws and bills potentially affect them, yeah. right? Educate. Absolutely. So we're going to do that today. We're specifically going to talk about legislation that is in Congress right now called the PRO Act. The PRO Act is the Protecting the Right to Organize Act of 2021. It's H.R. 842, which was introduced on February 4th of this year, sponsored by Representative Bobby Scott of Virginia. It has already passed the House of Representatives, which happened back in early March. It's been received by the Senate and is now in committee um, waiting on a, on a vote. So this bill, in a nutshell, expands labor protections related to employees' rights to organize, um, to collectively bargain in the workplace. And if it's passed, it would represent the biggest change in labor law in decades. So, Vinny, what, th- this is a big bill. Yes, it does a lot. It, it does, does a, lot a lot of things. What does it do? Revises the definition of employee, supervisor, and, and employer. Permits secondary strikes. All employees under a collective bargaining agreement are required to pay fees to the union. Outlaws hiring of permanent replacement workers. Outlaws captive audience meetings and other anti-union tactics. Overturns prohibitions on civil suits on an employer strengthens whistleblower protections, establishes penalties for employers who fail to comply with the uh, with NLRB orders, establishes new procedures for union elections, expands picketing rights, mandates interest arbitration for initial contracts, enhances remedies and penalties, and eliminates uh, right-to-work protections. Wow. So, so that's a lot, right? And, and we need to break that down. Yeah. We need to go back through all of these things and talk about exactly what that means. So, so let's start from the top. It, it revises the definition of employee, supervisor, and employer. So what does that mean? Um, really specifically, this speaks to the companies who like to call their workers contractors. Yeah. Right? That's, that's a big part of this. Yes. It, it kind of defines how an employer can or cannot deem an employee a contractor. Yeah. 
when you call an employee a contractor, they're no longer a, an employee, and they're no longer entitled to things like insurance and, and all of that Certain stuff. benefits. Right. So um, so it restricts the, the employer's ability to deem someone a contractor. And this is a tactic that, that some pretty big companies use, right? Yes. Amazon uses it. Um, FedEx uses it. Lyft, Uber, Instacart. Yep. All of these, you know, these folks who, who actually do work for these companies. Yeah. They're called contractors. Yep. So they're just paid a flat fee, and they're not they're not offered any kind of uh, protections um, or benefits that they they would otherwise be entitled to as a full employee of that company. Right. So the act actually uses what it calls the ABC test, um, and this is specific to classifying someone as an independent contractor. Um, what the ABC test does is it would require that a worker be free from the employer's control okay so so they're not working for the employer okay they're free from the control of the employer Um, they operate outside of of the typical um, purpose of that employer's business which definitely excludes folks like Lyft drivers yeah. and Uber drivers, right? Yeah. Um, and and for a while, FedEx was doing this. Oh, FedEx boy. was was calling their drivers independent contractors when they were wearing FedEx uniforms and driving FedEx trucks, um, and 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 answering to the orders of FedEx managers, yeah. right? Um, this is definitely outside of what this act would would define. So the the the. The National Labor Relations Act would would likely now cover gig workers, like you said, yep. um, the Lyft drivers, Instacart shoppers, all those folks, and and, and it would kind of close up a, a lot of confusion about this provision under the NLRA because there is currently a ton of confusion about who can be called an employee, who yeah. can be called a contractor, um, and even who is a supervisor. Yeah. Right. So all of those things are cleared up under this portion of the act. It permits secondary strikes. What? What? So what is, Vinny? What's a secondary strike? Well, right now, under a contract, we're we're banned from striking on certain issues. This would allow us to, to strike for different reasons in the workplace that that come up. I mean, the, the COVID pandemic shined a light on a lot of those things. We would have the ability to strike if if a company didn't. Uh, want to comply or or uh, give us a certain benefit wouldn't it also allow us to strike on behalf of a, another company yes and, and that's a little confusing for people but Jason we were talking earlier uh, about this and you talked about the like beverage industry how it's important to the beverage beverage industry to be able to do this yeah so with the beverage industry, uh, specifically with alcohol, beer sales, you have regional distributors. And a lot of times you'll go out on strike and they're hiring in replacement workers. They're still delivering their product. And there's really very little disruption. And it takes the teeth out of the union's ability yeah. to really fight back. Right. So if, if, um, if the distributor in, say, New Haven, Connecticut goes on strike, they just get the the drivers in North Haven, two towns over, to pick up the slack, work some overtime, and and pick up the slack and deliver the beer. Yeah. So, I mean, we've seen this recently in Rhode Island. Um, 
and you know, I actually love watching these videos where you see these scab workers who are can yeah. opening these trucks under bridges because they're not trained to drive them. They're yeah. not trained how to <laughs> properly be on the road. And they're putting the whole population at risk yep. doing so. But they're literally ripping the top off these trucks. <laughs> right. So so But that's cheaper than paying a union. Yeah. 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 <laughs> exactly. So what this does, what this provision of the act does is if if under my scenario, if New Haven, the New Haven distributor goes on strike, it allows North Haven to go on strike as well, yeah. um, uh, like a sympathy strike. Yeah. Right. They're they're allowed to strike as well and say, hey, we refuse to pick up the slack and do New Haven's job. Yeah, And I think importantly, it also allows people to show up at a place where the product would be delivered and to strike there as well. Yeah, yeah, really yeah. important. Yeah. That is important because, you know, you're not going to know, hey, this distributor sells these 30 brands and yeah. I shouldn't buy those today. But if somebody's standing outside that door saying, hey, you know, my job, I'm not being allowed to work right now. They won't let me deliver that product. You mind not buying it? It's right. going to go a lot further. So um, for us specifically, right, so if we go on strike, if Sikorsky Aircraft goes on strike, we're now allowed under this act, we would be allowed to go and picket at a Sikorsky customer. Yeah. Right. Go and go and picket at um, if we had a commercial customer who was buying helicopters, we could picket their headquarters. I'm not sure if that works both ways for suppliers as well. I don't know either. Uh, so big one, right? This is this is kind of one of the things that that we focus on in this law is that the act would require all employees under yes. a collective bargaining agreement to f pay fees. Yeah. So at local 1150, this is our agency fee. Yeah. Right. This is the fee that we charge for folks who choose not to join the union, but they pay a fee for yeah. the services that we provide. We call it an agency yeah. fee. So the, the act would permanently allow charging these fees even in states that have laws to the contrary. Exactly. So maybe we can kind of elaborate on why that's important. It strengthens the union. Uh, everybody who's uh, covered under a collective bargaining agreement would have to chip into that union. Even if they're not full members, they, they would pay a, a fee that's a little less than the, the regular dues, but they're still paying for the union being there. And gaining the benefits under the collective bargaining agreement. Right. They're paying for the services that we provide, right? And so so you can look at it from a couple of different angles, right? First from the union as a as an entity, right? Yeah. Why would any business provide services for free? Exactly. And, and currently this is the law. Currently in states that have these right to work laws, and we're gonna talk about right yeah. to work later on States that have right-to-work laws, are the union is not allowed to collect a fee for the services that they provide. The law says you must bargain a contract for these folks. You must provide representation in the workplace for these folks, but you cannot charge them a fee unless they agree to pay that fee. It, it's, to me, insanity, right? I agree. No other business in the United States is required to provide goods or services at no 
no cost. Exactly. No, a good example of this would be if people, if the government allowed you to just say, hey, you know what? I'm going to opt out of my taxes. I'm not yeah. going to pay federal tax. I'm not going to pay state tax. I'm just choosing, you know, I'm going to accept all the benefits of driving on the roads and, and all the services that the town has to offer, but I'm not going to chip in. And yep. to yep. think that those services and those things would still be in place is crazy. Right. Right. This is about trying to get rid of unions. Yep. And this is how it weakens the yeah. union, right? Folks opt out of paying dues and it weakens our ability financially yep. to take cases to arbitration, to, to do all those types of things, right? To provide the services that we normally provide. It costs money to represent people. Right. And that's yes, why does. we charge dues. Yep. This is a legal way to not only limit how much money that unions are able to collect and how, how many resources they have to use, and also to mandate how they have to use those resources. Yep. So the act also outlaws permanent replacement workers. There's so, some history on this, right? Yes. So back in 1981... Uh, air traffic controllers went out on strike and they had some pretty minor asks. They were looking for some better uh, hours and pay. So they wanted to cut down to 32 hours a week, being that it's a very stressful job. I think they were going to go up about $10,000 a year in pay. And they were looking for some modest increases in retirement benefits. Uh, so not the craziest ask in the world, but at the time it was illegal for public unions to go out on strike. And it was something that people had done in the past, but they hadn't been really... Uh, persecuted for. They weren't held accountable for going out on strike. It was people looked the other way and, and they were allowed to do so. But in this case, the government called them on it and 13,000 people were told you get back to work now or you're going to be terminated. And they went ahead and fired over 11,000 of them. And then they hired permanent replacement workers. Yeah. Yep. So that was kind of the beginning of that practice. And, and still today, 40 years later, it's legal for employers to permanently replace striking workers. Yeah. yeah. And just to kind of speak to the detriment that had um, back in 1981 that happened, by 1993, only approximately 850 people that had gone out on strike were rehired. So they all had the ability at that point to get their job back, but less than 10% actually came back. Yeah. And listen, I don't think that it's that it's as important to a group like us who are predominantly skilled workers, yeah. right? It's harder to replace us, let's exactly. face it. But when you're talking about a, a group of employees who are who are doing largely just laborious type of work, labor work, right? That un, I don't want to use the term unskilled, but mm -hmm. it's a real thing, right? Unskilled labor, they're easier to replace. Yeah. Right? You can you can hire a truck driver and 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 put them in a van and and have them, you know, delivering chips tomorrow. Yeah, I mean, that's a good reminder, but this also shows you that it doesn't have to be unskilled labor, right? These were people, air traffic controllers, yeah. who are highly skilled. They had to go pinch um, people from the military and from other industries, try to pull people back from out of retirement yep. just to fill these gaps with replacement workers. Um, so you do have to think about that they have the ability to do this in a highly skilled industry as well. So something that we've talked about on more than one of our podcasts is these captive audience meetings. So the act will outlaw captive audience meetings and, yes. and other, other anti-union tactics that, that companies typically use when a union is trying to organize their workplace, yes. right? So explain to me what a captive audience meeting is. So the employer will 
tell all the employees that are involved in a unionizing drive or usually, you know, maybe it'd be plant wide and they'll, you know, put them in an auditorium or in a meeting room and tell them, you know, basically tell them how bad the union is and why you don't want a union and just, you know, convey these anti-union messages without giving the union a chance to re to rebut them. Right. And, um, you know, after I've talked to some people that have experienced this firsthand, and I, I guess it is quite nerve-wracking. And I mean, I'm sure that the employer makes you feel threatened that you're going to lose your job, or you know, it's just it just sounds like a terrible, terrible thing to be involved yeah. in. And and they they all use it, right? All of these companies use yes. this tactic. We've talked about the organizing drive down to Bessemer at Amazon. And they used this tactic. And, you know, not only do they require that employees attend these meetings and they badmouth the union, but they gathered company information like people's cell phone numbers and they were sending them text messages. They were hanging up anti-union posters in the bathrooms. So all of that kind of thing would be outlawed under this new act. Right. It's it's coercion. The the act is essentially saying to the employer, stay out of it. Right. If if your workers want to form a union, they're allowed to form a union and it's going to be up to them and you don't have a say in it. That's what the act says to the employer. Yeah. And currently the way that it's set up, it's almost viewed as though if you're paying the employee to be at work, you can say whatever you want to them yeah. and they have to sit there and listen to it. Right. That's a condition of their yeah. employment. Right. And they're not required to tell the truth either. So yeah. they're actually forcing these employees to sit in a room while they lie to them about yep. the union. And oftentimes it's a hired in firm that's contracted in at $10,000 plus a day. Yeah. And, and it's funny when you, when you think about the fact that Amazon did this, right? We talk about Amazon and and the way they treat their workers and and how they're on this rate thing, right? They have yeah. to stay up with their rate and even something as as small as going to the bathroom negatively impacts their rate. So, you can't go to the bathroom, but you can spend 45 minutes in a meeting room listening to someone bark at you yeah. about how bad the union is. Yeah. yeah. I think psychologically it goes a step further, right? So, they have this worry that my rate or my productivity measure is going to be negatively impacted if I use the bathroom. And then in the two minutes that somebody sits down in a bathroom stall, when they look up, they're bombarded with yeah. anti-union material. Yeah. So it's a, and also a reminder that this isn't your time either. Yeah. The two minutes you're in the bathroom, that's not even for you. Oh, jeez. <laughs> <laughs> So the act also overturns prohibitions on civil suits against employers. So essentially, you know, that's that's now making it lawful to sue your employer, yeah. uh, which is really important. Well, it allows workers to get together and have a class action lawsuit against their employers. Right, which is not lawful right now, Yeah, which is insane, right? It is insane. So, uh, so that's lawful under the act. It also kind of along the same lines, it it strengthens protections for whistleblowers, yeah. right? So notoriously, especially big companies who have deep pockets yes. and, and can and can make your life miserable as a whistleblower, um, it, it kind of it keeps them at bay 
and it strengthens your protection. So if something is going on, something illegal is going on, or something unethical is going on within the company that you work for, you now have more protection in going out and blowing the whistle on your employer, right? Making it known publicly that your employer is engaging in unethical or illegal activities. Down in Pennsylvania, there was a group of 42,000 Amazon workers uh, who filed a lawsuit, and they're actually getting paid $8.6 million because they were not paid for the time they were forced to be in mandatory bag searches while going into the shop. (laughs) Wow. That's crazy. So the act also establishes penalties for employers who fail to comply with NLRB orders. And I think that this is far more important than people realize, right? Because right now... If an employer violates labor law, including pretty egregious things like allowing children to operate heavy machinery, right? And yeah. Walmart, Walmart got into this a few years back where they were, they were um, caught having 16-year-olds driving forklifts and, oh, and, uh, and other machinery, and it's not allowed. Uh, yeah. Labor law says that you must be 18 in order to operate equipment like that. Walmart didn't care. Walmart had 16-year-olds operating he- uh, lifts and, and tow motors and forklifts. Um, they got caught, and the penalty to them was that they had to post a notice in the workplace saying, hey, we did this and we're sorry and um, we know that we're not supposed to do it. Nothing else. Damn. So so the act, you know, makes it a, a little more painful for employers who do that type of thing. Employers now who violate labor law under this act, are they, they face the possibility of paying monetary penalties, which is really, that's good. It sends the message. Yeah, it's good because it protects not only the workers, but it protects the public, too. Think about the danger to a customer if you've got an untrained 16-year-old with a forklift. Exactly. I mean, I've been saved a few times in the shop by a forklift driver who was being pretty alert and, you know, didn't take out my ankles. So (laughs) (laughs) I kind of appreciate having an adult do that work at Walmart. Yeah, Granted, I'm not going to go into a Walmart. (laughs) Yeah. I was just going to ask that. Yeah, let's be clear on that. (laughs) <laughs> so so for me, one of the big bullet points on this act is that it establishes new procedures for union elections. So this is really one of the two or three big hitters for the PRO Act, right? Union elections are something that the employer has far too much say in, has far too much yep. power to influence, and the act will change all that. Essentially, the act leaves the employer out. The employer is yeah. no longer a party to union elections, right? They cannot establish the size of the bargaining yeah. unit. Um, they can't do some of the things that Amazon was doing, like putting up mailboxes and things like that. What else? It stops some of the delay tactics. I think they could still do some, but uh, I don't think they could do uh, use as many. It puts the election in the hands of the NLRB and the workers who are voting. Yep. So so when I look it up, right, do a quick search for the PRO Act, here are the bullet points that I get. It would reestablish what they call quickie elections. So, so these elections, this means that a union election could take place in as little as 13 days after okay. the original petition is filed. Um, right now, employers have the power to delay that for years, literally. 
like I said, the employer is no longer a party in the election process. It allows the union to define the bargaining unit. It allows the union to specify the location of the election. It allows the union to specify the election method, meaning is it going to be a mail-in? Is it going to be in person, even by telephone or internet? Um, so, so this puts the election process in the hands of the union, yeah. or at least establishing the rules that surround the election process. The NLRB, let's be clear, the NLRB runs the election. Yeah. Right? So so there's oversight. This is not a scenario where the union is going to say, hey, we won. We just had our election back at our union hall and everybody voted in favor of the union. That's not the way it works. This is, it's overseen and run by the National Labor Relations Board, right? So it, it's a fair election. Yeah. There's oversight. Um, it's just that employers are, are not a party to it, right? This is something that's up to the employees to vote on, and the employer doesn't have a say in it. So for me, this is the heavy hitter yeah. in the act for me because it really makes unionizing, it makes organizing a lot easier. Yeah. It's just, do I want a union in my workplace or don't I want a union in my workplace? So in terms of a union being able to bargain a contract, the act really helps us there. Because one of the major complaints or one of the major uh, roadblocks for new unions. So you, you go through this horrible process, right, yeah. where the, the employer is fighting you and fighting you and fighting you the whole way. And you, you, you overcome that and you finally win the vote, right? The union wins the vote. There's a union in the workplace. Now you have to battle that same employer to get a contract. Yeah. And, and this has become the focus of a lot of uh, employers' um, energy. Yeah. Right? They put a lot of energy into making sure that no contract ever happens. Yeah. Right? Exactly. So we, we, we battle, we win the union election, and we never get a contract. Yeah. So the act does a lot to protect us from that. So the act, what it does is it mandates interest arbitration for initial contracts. So there's going to be a period of time where the union and the employer will negotiate, but if they can't come to an agreement, a third party is going to step in and say, okay, here's what the contract's going to look like. And this third party is going to take into consideration everything, right? Yeah. They're going to take into consideration the the company's profits, the company's ability to pay certain benefits, and they're going to establish a contract for you. So gone are the days, if this act passes, gone are the days of employers using stall tactics yeah. and refusing to bargain a fair contract. Someone's going to step in after a period of time and say, okay, time's up. Yep. Here's your contract. Exactly. Right? So this is really good for us. Absolutely. Because too many times, um, you know, unions go by the wayside because they can't get a contract. Yeah. So the union will just liquidate. Right? Yeah. The union will disappear. Yeah. And we're back to square one. What is it? Decertification? Yeah. Yeah. It'll automatically be de decertified. Um, so for me, that's a really big um, provision yeah, me too. under the act. Um, and almost lastly, it enhances remedies and penalties. And what this means is that it the act will now hold 
individuals responsible for their decisions. So in other words, managers, directors, people who run companies, people who have leadership positions at employers, if they are willfully violating the law, they can now be held personally responsible for that. Not just the employer, but that person can be held personally responsible and have to pay monetary penalties and things like that. Awesome. So, So that's good. That keeps people... That keeps people honest. Yes. Yeah. And, right? and let's be clear, you're talking about willful conduct, right? Yes, so absolutely. this isn't like, hey, we caught you, you know, you made a mistake. This is about going after people who are deliberately manipulating the situation. Yes. Which happens every day. Absolutely. Um, and it happens every day because there's no penalty. Yep. Worst case scenario, the employer gets in trouble, but not the individual manager yeah. or director or whoever. So the last bullet point that we mentioned is that the act eliminates right to work protections. Yes. This is the number one reason to love this act for yes. union folks, right? Right to work is the arch enemy of unions. Currently, I believe there are 28 states with right to work laws, maybe 27. I think it's t- 27. Yeah, 27. Okay, 27 states with right to work laws. Somebody explain to me what a right to work law does. So, I mean, it's going to prevent free riders from benefiting from the representation that unions provide. Um, These people are able to, in a right-to-work state, just say, hey, I'd like you to represent me, and I'm going to come in and benefit from everything that you've set up here. Um, The wages, the benefits, I'm going to collect all that, but I'm not going to contribute anything. And I'd like you to keep uh, giving me these benefits in the future without me ever submitting, you know, anything to you. And right to work, it it really, and I've gotten so used to saying the words because I've been talking about it for a long time, but just the name right to work, this was an intentional tactic on the part of the folks who, who... first came up with these laws to call it right to work yeah they're they're trying to make it sound like it's pro worker like hey you have the right to work free of any union uh putting their hands in your pocket yeah and and taking money out of your pocket for dues you have the right to work as a free worker in this state right and it's it's disgusting because it's a lie yes right it's a lie that's made to undermine those people sure they're being told that they have these rights that and and really it's eliminating rights for them. So we have a little history on on right to work and how it ties into the Taft-Hartley Act, which was passed in 1947, that uh, amended the uh, National Labor Relations Act of 1935. Prior to the Taft-Hartley Act, we had closed shops, where a closed shop is an agreement between an employer and the union representing the uh, the employer's workers, requiring the employer to hire only labor union members and if non-members are employed, they must become a member of the union within a stated period of time or they'll lose their job. So prior to Taft-Hartley, that's, that's what we had. And afterwards, it did away with it. So close shop. You come to work at a unionized employer, you have to join the union. Yeah. And that's gone since what year? 1947 when Taft-Hartley passed. Wow. I didn't realize that. Uh, Taft-Hartley also required workers under a collective bargaining agreement to benefit non-members of the union, not just members. But it also forced the non-members to pay agency fees. But the loophole was the right-to-work laws in states where they said that non-members did not have to pay 
a fee to the union. So let's be clear. This is framed by the proponents of right to work yes. as as a good thing, right? And it's framed as a good thing for workers, which is what gets under my skin. Yeah, I'm okay with with trying to enact laws like this, if you're just honest about it. Just come out and say, hey, we're pro-business people, we're anti-worker people, and this is the law that we would like to see on the books. This is a law that drives wages and benefits down in order to improve profits yes. for big companies, Yeah, right? That's what the laws do, so let's be honest about it. Let's not try to frame it as, uh, something that benefits workers because the facts overwhelmingly point to that they're not beneficial yes, to workers. It's it's not. And, and so so let's talk about that. There's stat upon stat that speak to the fact that these laws are anti-worker and 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 don't benefit workers rather than what the proponents say. Um, on average, workers in states with right-to-work laws make. $8,989 a year less than workers in other states. So that's a 15.2% difference. So workers in right-to-work states make 15.2% less than workers in what we call uh, free organizing states. Yeah, not only that, but 24% of the jobs in right-to-work states are considered low-wage occupations compared with only 14.5% of jobs in other states. Um, so you see a lot higher poverty rates in right-to-work states. Uh, you also see a lot more workplace deaths. It's yes. 37% higher in states with right-to-work laws. Um, so you think about what a union does for you, right? We bring safety to the workplace. That shows right there that that's true, that it's working. So I, I think that's really interesting. I, I want to go back to something you just said um, about the number of low-wage jobs. Right-to-work states very often brag about, hey, this, this increases job creation. Yeah. Right? It's, one of the, it's one of the bullet points, one of the speaking points that they use yeah. to, um, to support enacting right-to-work laws. Um, when I was doing research for, for this episode, I came across an op-ed that was just written the other day by a woman by the name of Bobby Kilberg. Um, Bobby Kilberg is the president and CEO emeritus of the Northern Virginia Technology Council, right? So um, she writes this op-ed uh, essentially saying that, hey, we here in Virginia have it really good, and the reason we have it really good is because of our right-to-work status. Um, and if we allow the PRO Act to pass, it's going to ruin everything great in Virginia. And, and some of the things that she says in this op-ed— um, just really, I, I can't say it any other way, it pisses me off. Um, she says, if Congress were to pass the PRO Act, it would rescind right-to-work laws nationwide off the bat. That means Virginia workers could once again be forced to pay union dues, regardless of their support for unionization or lack thereof, or face the possibility of losing their job. It's a lie. Yeah. We don't force anyone to pay union dues. Exactly. Right? What we do is we charge a fee for the services that we provide, yes. like any other business. Yeah. I'm sure that as the CEO of the Northern, Northern Virginia Technology Council, she is not advocating that any of those companies 
provide services and goods for free. No. And no. look at the name right to work, right? They're framing it as it's your right to not be forced to pay this. But what about the right of the organization to not pay for services for people that aren't members? Yeah. It's really right to work for less. Yeah. And and that's the mantra, yeah. right, of, of unions, right to work for less. Um, she goes on to say in, in her op-ed, quote, in reality, this bill only does away with the right to work because doing so makes it that much easier for unions to force unionization upon a workplace. This is a bald-faced lie. Yeah, it is. There has never been an instance where a union forced unionization upon exactly. a workplace. It doesn't happen. Unionization happens when the majority of workers in that workplace yes. vote yes yeah. for the union. Yes. It's never forced. It might be forced upon that employer yeah. by the employees, but not by the union. Yeah. Right? So this really irks me, right? That this, But this is how they do it, right? This is how they convince working folks that this is a bad thing. Yeah. And I'm going to tell you right now, they just did a poll in Virginia, and the overwhelming majority of Virginia voters are against the PRO Act because of, of stuff like this, because they're convincing these people that it's a bad thing, yeah. that you're going to be forced to do something that you don't want to do, yeah. which is not the case. Every unionization uh, effort is based on a vote. Always. So something we need to touch on, and this happened in 2018 when a case came before the uh, Supreme Court, which made the whole public sector right to work, and it's called Janus versus AFSCME. And everywhere in the public sector now for, for unions, they can have free riders, they have people that aren't in the union paying the, uh, the dues, but still get the benefit of the union. Right. So explain what public sector is. Uh, you know... Our firefighters, our, our, our police officers, our public works departments, uh, any, anybody who's employed by state. Teachers. Ta- teachers, uh, towns, cities. Right. So public sector are, are all those folks, folks who work for municipalities yeah. and, 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 and even the federal government. And then um, we are private sector. Yes. Just so our listeners understand the difference between the two. So income levels in right-to-work states, what does that look like? Incomes are higher in, in uh, free bargaining states. So median household income in states with these laws is $11,628, which is about 15.4% less than in other states. Wow. So, so median household income, that's the, the, the combined income of every working individual in a household, right? Yeah. Family income, if yeah. you will. Uh, so that's even worse than the individual incomes, right? Uh, going back to what I talked about, the 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 difference in individual incomes is fifteen point two percent. The the difference in median household income is fifteen point four percent. And I can tell you, I did some research on Virginia itself. Um, and and Virginia surprisingly ranks fairly well um, nationally in terms of wages and job creation. But I will tell you this, that since the inception of right to work in Virginia, 
the median household income has steadily gone down. I'm not talking about huge, right? It's it's not it's not a lot, but it has steadily declined. You can't just look at how many jobs you're creating. You need to look at the quality of those jobs, exactly. the benefits they provide, and the lifestyle they afford the people that are performing that work. Absolutely. Yeah. So something that Virginia uses as um, as a, a a point to brag about in terms of their their right to work laws, they point to Amazon building a headquarters in Virginia, right? They said, hey, look at us. If it wasn't for right to work laws, um, we wouldn't have Amazon coming in here creating all these jobs. And and it's funny because we use the same point. Yeah, We say, hey, if it wasn't for the right to work laws, Amazon wouldn't have moved into Virginia to create all these low paying jobs. Yeah, Amazon moved to Virginia because of their right to work laws, not because it was, it, it was a, a great place to be, but it just because it was ripe for creating low income jobs. Yeah. Yep. This is where we can take advantage best. Yes. I mean, why would they build their headquarters in Connecticut where Connecticut pays the third highest wages in the country? Yeah. Why would they do that? So there are other things that right to work laws seem to affect things that, well, things that I think you, you would think of, which is poverty rates, right? So poverty rates in right to work states um, is higher than in free bargaining states um, by the tune of about 2% higher. Bottom line, in states with right to work laws, we've talked about it, the wages are lower, poverty levels, levels are higher, people are less likely to have health insurance, right? Yeah. Um, th- that's a fact. And there are numbers related to that, but people are, are less likely to have health insurance in right-to-work states. Um, even resources spent on education are lower in right-to-work states. Infant mortality rates are higher in right-to-work states. So so states that adopt these these laws, you know, it says something about that state, right? Yeah, education especially. Um, states with right-to-work laws spend on average 31.6% less per student for elementary and secondary education. So, I mean, that's a huge number. Yeah. So it speaks to to where their values are, Yeah. yeah. right? Their values are attracting big businesses that, um, you know, so I guess they're trying to boost their tax base. Um, but that confuses me because if you're trying to uh, attract Walmart and Amazon, they don't pay taxes, yeah. right? Only we pay taxes. Yeah. But I guess if you're attracting a business like Amazon, who's going to potentially employ tens of thousands of people who are paying taxes, then there's yeah. your tax base, right? Um, but it, it's it's where their priorities are, right? Their priorities are on making it comfortable for big business and making it not so comfortable for everybody else, for the workers who are working and slaving for those big businesses, right? You're not going to spend money on education. Um, you're not interested in, in making sure that the jobs provided for those folks are good jobs with good benefits. Yeah. This all ties back to this, the messaging around right to work, right? They're telling you that this is your right to, you know, your lifestyle and freedom. Yeah. 
But in reality, all the things that they're doing in these rights to work states are a formula to make sure that you don't have those things. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's it, eliminating rights. Yes. Let's let's eliminate let's eliminate your benefits. Let's lower your pay. Yeah. Let's spend less, you know, on education and worker safety. But you're going to be better off. Yep. And one of the things that they've started to do now, uh, the proponents of right to work, is they're because politics has become you know so dividing in this country um so polarizing they've they've kind of jumped on that bandwagon as well and they're they're telling people hey um you know you don't want unions because unions force you to make political contributions because they're spending your dues money on politics. Yeah, yep. That's they're, a they're, lie. They're putting your dues yeah, money into politicians' pockets. It's a lie. Yeah. It's against the law. And and quite frankly, unions are scrutinized by the government more than any organizations in the country uh, in terms of how they spend their money, yeah. right? Our, our, our finances are made public. Yeah. And you can go on the internet and see how much every officer at Local 1150 makes because we have to publicly divulge that information. Yes. And and how we spend membership dues money is is closely watched as well. And one of the big rules is you can't spend dues money on politics. Yes. This is why we have PAC funds. This yes. is why um, our membership contributes to drive yeah. because we need to use that money to, to take political action, yeah. right? The law says that unions cannot use membership dues money to to take part in political activities. We have to spend money that's specifically donated for that purpose. So so it's a lie when they tell you, oh, you're going to be making political contributions through your dues money. That's yeah. why the union wants your dues money. It's a lie. So we could talk about this all day. Yeah, absolutely. Right? We can. It's a subject that I think any member of a union should be passionate about certainly those of us who are in in leadership positions are passionate about it because we know what it means for us and and for quite frankly for workers who don't have a union yet but who want a union yes. right it's really important for those folks so we could talk about it all day long and we could we could talk about the benefits of of getting this law passed but i think we've done a good job of doing that of of educating folks on what this means for us and for other workers so what do we do about it we need to contact our representatives yes. in government and express our opinion Right. This is how we take political action. It doesn't cost you anything to, yeah. to take political action. Pick up the phone, pick up a pen, write an email, let your representatives in Washington know that you want the PRO Act to pass. Yes. I, it doesn't matter if you support Republicans, independents or Democrats. Yes. You want them to vote for the PRO Act. Yeah. So if that's you, if you are a union worker who supports unions and who supports other workers' ability to join unions, then you need to you need to take that action. Yes. Right? You need to let your representatives in Washington know that you want that to happen, that you want the PRO Act to pass. This stuff works, folks. If you let your if enough people let their representatives know that they want something, they listen to you. They yeah. really do. Because they're afraid not to get voted back in. Yes. Absolutely. Yeah. And again, this doesn't have to be a political issue, right? A lot of our members have the mindset that, you know, I work hard and I don't want people having their hand in my pockets, taking my money. And that's exactly what we're trying to fight here with the PRO Act. We're trying to make sure that you don't have freeloaders that are hurting the union 
uh, and the union's ability to operate in the long run because they're you know not paying their fair share. Amen. Absolutely. Real quick, I think we also need to give a shout out to our members down in Florida and Alabama because we have very, very high participation yes, rates. We, do. we have 100% union members in Alabama and close to that in Florida. Um, and that really speaks to the membership that we have. Yeah, so let's be clear about why you're saying that. Florida and Alabama are both right-to-work yes. states. Right. So the folks down there don't have to pay union dues if they drop out of the union, yeah. right? Um, they they could be freeloaders if they want, and they choose not to be. Yes. Because they, they understand the power of being in the union. Yeah, and that's not the same in all places, right? So the PRO Act is still important, but it, we have to point out that we've got some great members down there. So thank yep. you. And I think yep. it's especially important for the, the workers down in Florida and Alabama to contact their legislators and let them know that they want the PRO Act passed. Yeah, I think it is too. So do that. Okay, so this week's contest. When and where was the first right-to-work law passed? Good question. So send us your answer. Email us at comms at teamsters1150.org. That's C-O-M-M-S at teamsters1150.org. Give us the correct answer, your name, and your contact information, and we'll let you know if you won. Folks, thanks for listening. And listen, make sure that you're contacting us at that same email address, comms at teamsters1150.org, and let us know what you think of the podcast. Let us know what you want to hear on the podcast because we want your ideas. So make sure you're letting us know, right? This podcast is for you. So let us know what you want to hear and we'll make sure you hear it. Thanks for listening. Thanks for tuning in and we'll see you next time.